This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. We here in these United States of America have many things to be proud of. For instance, uh, 200 years of democracy, Purple Mountain's majesty, amber waves of grain, The Daily Show with John Stewart. I mean, it's all good. But there are a few things that we as a nation believe we need to tweak. One of those things is our penal system. I think that regardless of whether you live in a red state or a blue state and how you think politically, I believe that most people agree something is seriously wrong with our penal system. We have two people on today who are going to talk about the penal system. Their names, Laura Magnani and Harmon Ray. They are co-authors of a book entitled Beyond Prisons a new interfaith paradigm for our failed prison system. A couple of things about uh, the co-authors. Laura Magnani is Assistant Regional Director for Justice for the American Friends Service Committee in Oakland, California, and author of America's First Penitentiary, a 200-year-old failure. Harmon Ray is Director of the Vanderbilt Program in Faith and Criminal Justice and a Soros Senior Justice Fellow. He is the author of Restorative Justice, Moving Beyond Punishment, and I'd like to welcome Laura and Harmon to Common Threads. Hello there. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Glad to have you both on. My first question in the uh, introduction of the book, you talk about a new morality, and I believe that that really is the crux of the book. Could, could either one of you discuss what is the new morality and how it works uh, in, in reforming of prisons? start out with a quote from um, the South African Council of Churches, Reverend Frank Chicane, who says that people demanding punitive justice are ignoring the great justice a new morality could bring, a shared morality freed from colonialism, oppression, and greed. Now that may sound like a tall order, um, this new morality, and yet I think if people ask themselves what kind of world they want to live in, begin to realize that the way that we're organized now is not getting us what we need or what we want in terms of of living together for the good of everyone. So when we talk about um, a society without prisons, we're really talking about rethinking a lot of, um, of the systems that are in place now, starting with the economic system and the fact that uh, in the United States and really around the world, the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor, and that is a formula for brokenness and frustration and ultimately, you know, crime. So we're, we're talking about a new morality that really is radically inclusive and allows um, room for all of us to thrive. And if we were able to bring about such... Um, such a social order, we think it would have a tremendous impact on what we now call crime. When we take a look at the uh, penal system, the justice system here in the United States, comparing it to other industrialized countries, where do we stand? 
give a slight, a sort of a grim statistic that we have uh, in this country 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. And, uh, you know, it's kind of comparable to our consumption of natural resources and energy compared to the rest of the world. And that we're, uh, we're you know, in terms of the energy, we're, we're very greedy people. And in terms of the, uh, the penal system, we're a very punitive people. We're a very vengeance-oriented people. And uh, we use um, more than any country in the world to look at another country anywhere in the world and say, now these people, they're doing it right. What, what country or countries might you think of? Probably most commonly the Scandinavian countries um, where they've um, really de-emphasized use of incarceration and tried to look much more holistically at the problem that, uh, <clears throat> that crime might uh, signal uh, so that, um, or you could look at, at uh, indigenous cultures as well, um, where the in, when societies that are organized by tribe are much more communal in their approach to uh, that something going wrong. So if something go- goes wrong in a tribal culture, the whole community has an opportunity or can have an opportunity to look at that situation and figure out what went wrong. And, and how to solve it rather than to think of it only in terms of a bad person doing a bad thing to us that needs to be uh, responded to with more violence. I think it's a little easier for us to compare ourselves to industrialized societies, so let's, let's talk about the uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, let's say uh, I'm in Sweden, I rob a bank. Any ideas as to the, the options that are, are ahead of me? I can't actually answer that. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the, the Swedish or other Scandinavian justice systems uh, as I would like to be, but so I don't know exactly what would happen in that scenario. But but I, I agree with Laura that, that the, the there's a much less uh, high uh, incarceration rate, and there are much more alternatives available. Um, my guess would be that there would be some effort to. Uh, 
them, uh, you know, pay restitution to the victim, in this case the bank, and that there would be some work with the person uh, around the issues that led to their crime, and that there would be a, a de-emphasis on long-term uh, harsh incarceration and more emphasis on restitution and, and healing. But I don't, I don't know exactly what the, what the law holds or what the sentencing structure is there. You, you mentioned in the book that there's a little bit of a dissonance between what people believe to be safety, what, what it is to be safe in a society, and what what you believe is is a, is a more, and I'll use the word you, you just used recently, uh, a holistic understanding of what it is to be safe. Uh, either one of you want to tackle that? That's an issue that um, we've been working a lot with in the American Friends Service Committee as we take this book out to communities, because I think it's a it's perfectly natural human response that we all want to feel safe. Um, but I know that uh, as we entered um, the current war period that we're in, President Bush announced to the world that he would not stop uh, until all Americans were safe. Uh, that is not stop waging war until all Americans were safe. And I began to ponder that uh, statement, not only in terms of the fact that we were creating less and less safety around the world, but wondering what that could possibly look like. Because I don't think that, you know, life is safe, per se. But we began having dialogues with different groups that that I work with anyway, as we um, have been talking about this book, and um, getting small groups of people together to talk about what is safety, what makes you feel safe, you know, which very quickly gets to questions about well-being and comfort and, um, um, you know, just kind of what makes it possible for us to grow to our fullest potential. Um, and that's not to say that, that people don't have a, you know, a, an obvious human need to not think they're going to be shot down as they walk down the street. I mean, we, we all need that level of safety, the sense that, that we're physically uh, not in danger. There's no question that, 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 you know, that's something we're all entitled to and that we need to be seeking in, in, in deep kinds of ways. But I, I think in terms of, you know, I can promise you you know, that when you go to work today, nothing bad will happen. I can't promise you that. I can't promise it to my child, even though I think it's a very primal, basic thing that any parent would want to be able to provide for their child. So the question of what constitutes safety is, is a very deep one, and I think, I think we could all benefit from really thinking about it. Um, what do we really need, and, and, and what don't we need? I mean, when do we need to take risks and to... Um, and to move out of trust rather than out of fear. I think another part of that um, has to do with um, what is it we need to be safe from. And, you know, there have been numerous studies, and we cite some of this in in the book, um, about the damage to human life and the, the taking of human life and the damage to the illness and injury to human beings and the theft of property and the damage of property that is done by um, corporate malfeasance and um, 
prosecuted, and most of which seldom, when their unit is prosecuted, ends up in incarceration. Um, compared to street crime, or what, what criminologists call street crime or blue-collar crime, which is the kind of crime that that is all over the newspapers and, and, and you know the six o'clock news or the um, the crime that that most Americans are scared of, but in which is very heavily punished. Um, but it's really the former kind that do, does a lot more damage, a lot more human life, a lot more um, damage to human beings and their property is done uh, by that other level of crime that is committed by people who have access to different set of tools from those that, that poor people have access to. I know I wish that... We're not safe from corporations, from our own government, um, and just as we don't feel safe from um, from blue-collar, uh, quote-unquote, street criminals, just as, and we're often, we're, we're often, particularly women and children, are not safe often in their own homes, and yet those are the the corporate stuff and the domestic stuff is, is not what the system focuses, the criminal justice system or the news media primary or the politicians primarily focus on. Wouldn't you say, though, that in, in recent times with Enron and uh, WorldCom and some of these others, uh, it, it really has hit the front pages, and there is, I believe, much more of a response to white-collar crime these days than there was just just a couple of years ago. Would you agree to that? Well, I, I think it's true, and I also think that, that there are sacrificial lambs in the Enron kind of scenario, that while certain people are being prosecuted and, and, and splashed all over the front pages, many other people are going on with business as usual and using the exact same tactics to gouge the... the uh, consumer. So so I guess I'm I'm a little bit suspicious even when the the newspapers do begin to talk about these issues because I think that it's such a tip of the iceberg in terms of what we could be looking at. And it's the consumers, it's the investors and it's the employees of these corporations who all suffer when the Enron or WorldCom sort of stuff happens, uh, whether it's on the front pages or not. Sure, it, it's just interesting that that uh, I doubt I doubt few would disagree with you that there certainly is much more emphasis placed on street crime. I think it's a visceral reaction when you think of things like somebody invading your home, somebody putting a gun in your face, uh, uh, somebody harming your children. It's just it's easier to think of that as being more of a threat than some guy in an office somewhere in Houston or, or New York City. That, that's right, and that, that is a reality. I think the other thing that's important to point out is that the number of people sitting in prisons for that kind of vis- visceral, dangerous crime is quite small compared to the overall prison population. We're talking about an average of about 60% of the people in prisons are there for nonviolent crimes, um, crimes that might be against property but are more likely to be drug-related and are not the kind of gun-in-your-face thing that, that really drives the prison industry. In the, on Chapter 8, uh, under the banner of, of crime, the subchapter here, you have a quote by uh, uh, Yadzi, and it is, 
A crime is evidence that there is something wrong with relationships. An event must be seen in the context of what created it. Would you, would you agree that many people would look at that and say, yes, but what about personal responsibility? Sure, personal responsibility is an important thing, but we're not all individuals uh, without any sort of connection to our past and our future, and we're not all simply either good people or bad people. In fact, none of us is simply a good person or a bad person. And responsibility is not only personal, but also communal, it's familial, it's corporate, it's, it's social, it's political, it's cultural. And uh, I think the key is to strike a balance in, in, in doing criminal justice, you know, in trying to figure out what is the most appropriate healing response uh, when a crime takes place or when a person violates another person. Uh, how do we balance out these various parts of, of responsibility? And, and how do we find a way that somehow um, looks at what has been done to the person violated what has been done to the local community, what has been done to um, the person who did the violating in his or her past, what has been done to their family, uh, what what needs to happen uh, in order to, to reach some kind of win-win situation that sort of everybody or every part of that equation can benefit from and doesn't uh, sort of reflexively, in a kind of knee-jerk way, um, hammer one party in that, in that whole uh, scenario in, in a way that is guaranteed to produce greater problems down the line. Because, uh, you know, the, the way our system responds in harsh, punitive ways doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, really um, correct to use the you know the, the whole idea of a correction system. It doesn't correct anything or anybody. It it renders people who have been violated. Uh, it, it keeps them violated. It raises their taxes to build another cage. It um, it doesn't really uh, restore the relationship between those people. It really doesn't do anything to to help or support the person who committed the crime to be different next time. And I think that, that uh, we, although we would strongly agree that, that uh, accountability has to be part of the equation that we're talking about as we seek, you know, new paradigms for justice, at the same time what's pretty clear is that the focus on individual um, culpability, which is the way our system is set up now, really lets the rest of us completely off the hook. Nobody has, as long as we're focused on a bad person doing a bad thing, out of the context, out of the social context in which it occurred, nobody has to take a look at whether, you know, that's the school system failed that person, whether there was anybody paying attention to um, the family life of the person as they were coming up, whether there was any health care system that was providing uh, treatment for alcoholism or for drug addiction. And 
as long as we can turn a blind eye to any of our of the corporate or in this case the societal responsibility for what occurred you know again we're in the sacrificial lamb dynamic where we can blame it on an individual and and let the rest of us uh, off scot-free at some point we really have to pay attention to what are the priorities of the society and what are we investing in um, is are those investments producing the kind of life-affirming way of life that we really all need and want or are we just kind of pitted against each other one-on-one and and the person who's strongest you know prevails if you're just joining us you're listening to wgvu this is common threads i'm fred stella and today we're talking about the book beyond prisons a new interfaith paradigm for our failed prison system I'm speaking with co-authors Laura Magnani and Harmon Ray. Uh, let's talk uh, just a little bit more about uh, uh, class and punishment. Uh, you indicate that class defines punishment. What are, the, what are the numbers that you're aware of in terms of what happens if you run afoul of the law and you're white versus doing the same thing and being black or Hispanic or, or something else? Native American Indian. Harmon is I have a little trouble hearing that question, Fred. Could you? Sure. I was talking about class and punishment. How how uh, you indicate in the book that class defines punishment, and often race defines punishment. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about just exactly what this means in reality. What happens if somebody is, is black and poor versus somebody who is white? And, and before we were talking about, say, the white-collar crime versus uh, blue-collar crime, street crime. Now I'm saying, what if uh, uh, you have two crimes committed by two different individuals, but they're the same kind of crime, but one is black and one is white. One might be from the suburbs, one might be from the city. Well, one, one, I mean, there are a number of levels at which that, that operates. It's just to give some, just a, a kind of a, a window into the way racism works in the system around, around the drug war. Um, black people constitute about 12, 13% of the U.S. population and about 13% of the U.S. illegal drug consumption population. So just about what their population is, uh, their percentage of the population is. Yet black people constitute... Uh, I think it's 34% of those who are arrested for drug crimes constitute, I think it's 54% of those who are convicted of drug crimes, and I believe it's 72% of those who are incarcerated for drug crimes. So you start off with, uh, you know, kind of an equal proportional uh, violation of the law, and yet, uh, by the time you end up having gone through all the various, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of points, the discretionary points that the, that the system uses, you end up with an incredibly racist result in terms of who actually gets locked up and who doesn't. So that's, that's one little, um, you know, way of looking at the way race plays itself out in, in the war on drugs, which is primarily responsible for the the rise in, in incarceration rates over the last 20 or 30 years in this country. And when you look at a, a way of talking about the way the effect of class plays, um, you can, when you look at the, the operation of the death penalty in the U.S., um, 
95% of the people who end up on death row could not afford their own lawyer. And so they were represented uh, by court-appointed private lawyers, many of whom uh, never had any experience in murder cases or sometimes even in criminal cases at all. Just whoever the judge happened to pick out in the courtroom to appoint to the case or by staff, public defender staff. Uh, many of whom do not have the resources available to, to the prosecution. And so when you had a case like the O.J. Simpson case, um, which is a classic death penalty case, um, the kind of case that the state almost always tries to get the death penalty on, they didn't even try it in Los Angeles because they knew they couldn't get it. As it turned out, they couldn't even get a conviction for whatever reasons. But the prosecution for once in that case was up against a, a defense team that was was bought by a very a very wealthy individual and that's not the case with you know 99.9 percent of the people that, that uh, are tried for murder in this country so that's just a couple of, of little ways of responding to that question you can also look um, at the situation historically and it's rather alarming how this pattern has stuck with the prison system from the very beginning. At the, in the original Walnut Street Jail in, in Philadelphia, which was the first penitentiary in this country, um, the, the breakdown racially of that first 100 people being incarcerated in the Walnut Street Jail, 30% were African-American at a time when African-Americans made up one less than 1% of the population in Philadelphia. 70% uh, were immigrants. And those kind of patterns have, have continued to, to show themselves uh, throughout the system. The other thing that's notable is that the tendency to use prisons to incarcerate people of color and particularly to incarcerate, for instance, indigenous cultures within a particular society repeats itself in every country around the world. I've lived in the South all my life. I'm, I'm here in Tennessee now. And um, in the history of this region, you, you can trace class and race out very well in terms of the population of prisons, as well as the use of lynchings, as well as the population of people who get the death penalty versus those who don't. And it, it, it has to do with also the race of the victim, the person who's charged with killing. Uh, white life is valued much more highly than black life when it comes to uh, who, when the DA tries to get the death penalty on someone. Uh, it's almost always when the victim is white and middle or upper class and um, and in terms of the incarceration statistics you can you can see that like like after the the uh, after reconstruction um, the prisons black population just took off sky high and all these laws were passed the black codes that, that made being black basically uh, a crime laws against things like loitering and vagrancy and no public means of support and that sort of thing that, that black people were most likely to exhibit simply because they didn't get their 40 acres and a, and a mule. Well, Laura and, and Harmon, I want to continue this conversation. We're out of time for this week, but I'm asking you to join us again next week, and we'll pick this right back up, all right? Thank you. Sure, thank you. My guests today have been Laura Magnani and Harmon Ray. They are the co-authors of Beyond Prisons, a new interfaith paradigm for our failed prison system. I'm Fred Stella. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Please join us again next week.
Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our conversation on the book Beyond Prisons, a new interfaith paradigm for our failed prison system. Its co-authors are Laura Magnani and Harmon L. Ray. A couple of things about the co-authors. Laura is an Assistant Regional Director for Justice for the American Friends Service Committee in Oakland, California. And she also authored America's First Penitentiary, A 200-Year-Old Failure. Harmon Ray is director of the Vanderbilt Program in Faith and Criminal Justice and a Soros Senior Justice Fellow. He is the author of Restorative Justice, Moving Beyond Punishment. And I'd like to welcome once again to Common Threads, Laura and Harmon. Hello. Hello, thank you. Hello. Thank you. Listen, when we uh, left off last week, uh, Laura, you mentioned ever so briefly towards the end, the Walnut Street Jail, or prison, uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, I read about that in your book, and I wanted you to give us a little bit more of a history on how prisons started in our country, and um, what influenced them. And um, this is kind of a big question. How did they influence what we have today? Right. Well, the, the probably primary influence on uh, the creation of the penitentiary came from the interfaith community. Interfaith in those days meant uh, various Protestant faiths. There was very little room in the society for either Jewish or, or Catholic participation, much less any other faith tradition. But a variety of Protestant uh, groups got together because they were horrified at what they saw as the kind of dungeon-style uh, penal system that prevailed with a lot of emphasis on corporal punishments and just warehousing people without any provisions for their care. Um, and so it was a it was an effort uh, toward reform. It was a it was a benevolent um, piece of charitable work that inspired the original penitentiary, where instead of warehousing people and and uh, committing all kinds of violations on their bodies, including the death penalty, these uh, good church people 
um, ushered in an era of um, much more uh, rehabilitation-oriented response to crime, where people would be uh, housed in sanitary conditions, uh, given uh, coarse but nutritional meals uh, that would be provided rather than um, kind of being um, at the mercy of one's family to pass things through the windows to you and that kind of thing. Uh, with trained staff um, who who were supposed to be operating on this kind of rehabilitation model, and the intention was that uh, uh, with uh, decent food and uh, a certain amount of work ethic, uh, people would be reformed. Of course, isolation was very much a part of the original philosophy, that you would be separated in in individual cells and really have no human contact, certainly no contact with, you know, the kind of nefarious people you might have been hanging out with up until that time, and only contact with, you know, good ministerial types who were permitted to walk down the hallways and read from the Bible to you. So it was a, it was a religious experiment in many ways um, that um, was intended to, um, to, to redeem uh, people. Um, what happened very quickly was that they became overcrowded, um, that um, the, the opportunities for, for corruption began to, to creep in uh, among the guards and between the guards and the prisoners, and um, the reintroduction of, of corporal punishments to, to enforce the silent method. They were people who were supposed to be silent in these prisons. Um, not talk to each other and so forth. So in, to enforce their, their fairly strict rules, they began again to resort to um, the various kinds of, of, of corporal punishment. But to solve the, the failures of this original exper- experiment, what, what was done was, was to build bigger ones, to, to try to make the experiment uh, work uh, you know, based on size. And we still find ourselves doing that. I mean, the governor in California has just called a special session here uh, this week because of the overcrowding of the California prison system. We, uh, we had 12 prisons in California from 1859 to 1979, and since that time we built another 21, and we're still talking about intense you know, overcrowding and the need to build um, 100,000 more cells. So there's no end to this. This is a bottomless pit that we've created, and nobody stops to say, has the experiment worked, or has it in fact failed? And it is, it is our thesis in this book that in fact it has failed. In your, uh, in your estimation, say in California, uh, why are people, why are so many people in jail right now? Is that a, a lot of, I'm assuming, a lot of drug convictions I would say that the, the biggest factor of why people, so many people are in, in prison right now is, is politics, that um, we hear about um, one particularly egregious crime, and the politicians splash themselves all over the, the newspapers, getting tough on one category after another after another. The biggest fear is that somebody will be released from prison and commit another crime. Well, that's that's inevitable because we make much more violent people in these institutions. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you lock somebody up, treat them like dirt, treat them like an animal, 
give them no opportunities whatsoever and certainly no opportunity to behave like an adult. I mean, you're not responsible for paying your bills or for putting food on the table or for taking care of your family. You're not responsible for anything whatsoever in the, in the years that you're sitting in these places. Um, even what time maybe you go to bed or what time the lights are turned out. Um, you know, this doesn't grow mature adults. And so, of course, people are going to come out more dangerous and, and more crimes going to happen. So we, we have this kind of political machine that, that says we have to get tough, we have to get tough, we can't allow um, more crimes to occur, but we're not paying attention to whether the methods that we're employing for, for not allowing that have anything to do with, with creating that result. Would you say that a lot of people in America believe that uh, prison is not as tough as it should be? Any well, idea? Um, at public opinion poll results, I see a, a kind of a different picture. There are people who believe that, and you, you kind of hear that. Uh, but when you look at the polls, uh, the people are far ahead of the politicians. That most people say uh, they believe in treatment in the community for nonviolent prisoners rather than incarceration. Most people say that for those who are violent and do need to be locked up for a while, they believe in treatment and programs and education for those people while they are locked up. Most people say they believe in good reentry programs for people coming out of prison or jail. Um, most people say they believe in, in victims of uh, crimes being provided opportunities for restitution. Uh, most people say they believe in victims having the opportunity to face their violator um, and have some kind of dialogue when, when that would be appropriate. Um, and so the, the, I think the mentality of, of the majority of the public is much, much better than, than, than that of, of the politicians and, and the mass news media. I keep hearing about the, this, uh, the sheriff of uh, Maricopa County in, in Arizona, uh, Sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio. Are either of you familiar with him? No. I, I am by, by reputation. And I'm, I know you're talking about Yeah, him. yeah, and, and it just seems that uh, he's lauded for uh, making uh, uh, life extremely difficult for prisoners and also very humiliating. And uh, you know, he claims to get results. Do you have anything to... Well, he keeps getting reelected, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. That's results, I guess. Yeah. If, if, he, if he had results in lower crime rates, then I don't think uh, he would keep having to pitch more tents back behind his jail to lock more and more people up in. Is that, in fact, what is happening? Over the years, that's, yeah, they're, 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 they have been housing people in tents. I don't know exactly what they're doing currently. But that's no, that's that's what I understand. I mean, I know that they, they live in tents. I didn't realize that uh, that uh, the number of tents has, uh, has uh, uh, you know, Increased, yeah, and I think this is kind of back back to your question earlier um, uh, that Laura responded to about why is there so much incarceration in California? This same question would be true of a lot of other places. It's not just because there's more crime. In fact, it's not because there's more crime. No. There's there's less crime, and it has been for at least ten or twelve years now. Um, there's a very clear trajectory, and it's because of certain public policies that are fomented by the mass media and by uh, cynical, manipulative politicians and and who, who write certain laws and certain things into 
into legislation, and and so it's because of public policy. That, that's why we have so many people locked up. It's not because of the views of the majority of the, of the public, and it's not because this is the only thing we could do, that there aren't other alternatives available that would work better and be more cost-effective. I think the other uh, thing about your sheriff in Arizona, and I do remember reading about him, um, is that, that there's always been a fascination on the part of the public for kind of cowboy responses to things. There's there's a there's a certain romanticism. There's a certain feeling of of you know get the bad guy and 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 cheering on of 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 the uh, superhero who you know ignores all the real laws and just goes and, and, and gets his man. And I think that, that we have to really start challenging that that fantasy, because it is a fantasy. And we can't be making our social policy based on that kind of dream that, you know, somebody's going to come along on a white horse and, um, you know, shoot their sixth gun or whatever it is, and, 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 and all of our problems will be solved. I mean, we really have to start behaving like adults and figure out what's what's needed to grow a healthy society. You know, it's interesting, throughout the show last week and up to this point right now, we really haven't talked about religion and spirituality, and your book is very grounded in spirituality. That's one of the reasons you're on this show. And uh, I haven't addressed that yet uh, too much, so let, let's talk about that. First of all, my question is, what do you think of programs like uh, Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship. I, 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 are you on the same page with him, or is he on the same page with you? Uh, are there other programs that you admire that are, are working well in uh, in prisons? Well, I, I've, I've had uh, a good... I've been watching Prison Fellowship and interacting with Prison Fellowship for a number of years, and I have... Um, I don't share the particular theology that prison fellowship does. They have a kind of very evangelical, very conservative creed that you have to sign on to before you can go to work for prison fellowship. And I think that justice fellowship, which is kind of their policy arm, is, is, is much better in terms of their analysis of the system and to call for alternatives to incarceration. But I think that prison fellowship is in danger of, and may be, well, violating uh, separation of church and state. There was a recent case in Iowa, uh, federal court, I believe, that, in which um, they were running a kind of what I call Jesus prisons um, at state expense and privileging certain uh, the people that, that sign up for this program, uh, giving them better treatment and more perks. Um, and the federal judge struck that down, and I'm sure the prison fellowship will be appealing it, but it's symptomatic of, of the kind of um, emphasis on on faith-based sort of stuff that's coming out of the Bush White House, and uh, there's just a lot of problems, with, and, and the same thing is true of some of the corporate prison um, managing groups like the Corrections Corporation of America, which is based here in Nashville. They have eight contracts with very conservative, right-wing, fundamentalist, Protestant, Christian groups to have exclusive access to prisoners uh, in their 63 facilities. Uh, and no such contracts that I'm aware of with any other version of Christianity or any other faith. And that's 
really problematic, I think. I, th- I think that, that rather than hoping that the religious community will, will run good prisons, as, as the model uh, in the case of, of Colson's group might suggest, that there's a lot more hope among um, faith groups. If you look at the, the pioneering of restorative justice kinds of paradigms, um, now, this is not a perfect uh, model either, and we can talk about that, but it's certainly something that's very hopeful in terms of what faith communities can offer as we look at, at uh, alternatives to the prison system. A restorative justice model would, would be uh, a, a model of justice based on healing and wholeness rather than on retribution and um, violence or punishment. And... Um, um, it was started really by the Mennonites, but before that started by indigenous communities who have practiced different forms of restorative justice for centuries. Um, and um, there's, a, there's a lot of hope, I think, in, in those uh, kinds of paradigms. The problem we've been seeing is that the current system is appropriating some of the language of restorative justice and adding it on to the retributive system. So we're seeing people come out of prison having already been punished and then be saddled with debt, uh, for instance, uh, for restitution. So we're adding what could be considered a restorative solution to a punitive solution and just made it more punitive. So so we have some concerns about restorative justice, also concerns that it not be just based on an individual wrongdoing kind of model, but that it include the role of the community as we're trying to come up with um, new ways of responding to uh, to crime. Part of the difficulty that restorative justice uh, programs have is that largely they are dependent for funding and for case referrals on the retributive justice system that is in power and in place now. And it's been very difficult to raise funds um, and to find ways of getting cases to do alternative means of adjudication in the community um, when you have such a monopoly on that bio-retributive mindset and retributive political and financial power. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. And I'm Fred Stella. We're talking about the book Beyond Prisons, A New Interfaith Paradigm for Our Failed Prison System. My guests today are Laura Magnani and Harmon Ray. And uh, we're talking about restorative justice. Uh, actually, I was—I've uh, got a question here: uh, uh, the difference between radical and reform justice. Well, one of the problems with reform justice that we've seen over the years is that it, it stays with the existing system. So it, it has an assumption built into it that the existing system is is right and is working, and we just need to tweak it in various ways. And that's kind of. the the road that reform has tended to go down. What we're looking for in terms of a radical justice is is something that really starts from the ground up and doesn't assume that prisons are are the primary answer or the the best answer to these problems, that we really have to be much more creative about the solutions that we're we're going for. So our understanding or or, or the kind of radical justice we, we are talking about is breaking out of the existing retributive model and and uh, looking for something that fundamentally is, is starts from the ground up as different. You know, the word radical really doesn't mean extreme, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the way most people think. 
engage in dialogue with the reader um, around what are the roots of this crisis we, that we find ourselves in. And, uh, and so part of what we mean in talking about radical justice is, is looking at the roots of not only crime, but, but of punishment and that model and, and what's problematic about, about both crime and punishment and that, that punishment is not necessarily um, the solution to the problem that's named by the word crime and really they're more two sides of the same coin because the idea of, of punishment is to intentionally inflict pain and suffering upon a human being. For me, that's a pretty good definition of crime too. So maybe they're, they're more akin than they are uh, in contrast with each other. Uh, one of the pioneers of restorative justice, Howard Zare, who is a Mennonite, uh, talks about how disrespect is the roots of crime and disrespect is also the roots of punishment. In an almost perfect world, I wouldn't say perfect because if, if it was perfect, then we wouldn't even be talking about this, but in, in a society that is more framed to, to, to your to your paradigm, uh, would you have prisons at all? Would you would you have facilities to hold people from society? You know, we say in the book that there probably are uh, some people who need to be separated from society. We don't know what the numbers would be. We certainly don't think that they'd be numbering in the millions as the system does now, or maybe even in the thousands. Um, the problem is that now we build the whole system on that very small group of people. So it, it would be hard to say that there would be, a, 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 that we think there could be a system that wouldn't have any separation into it. I think there probably would need to be in some cases. Um, but the primary solutions, um, I think, could be much more diverse than that. You know, we, what, now we have a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, there's a, there's a whole range of, of brokenness and a whole range of, of actions that occur out there in the world, and we have one, one um, response, uh, no matter what they are. I mean, I would be looking forward to something much more like a voucher system, which is what they did when they emptied the juvenile facility in Massachusetts um, a couple of decades ago, um, which is that, that a, an act occurs, people take a look at, at the contributing factors there, and the person, um, the perpetrator, has to, to, you know, has to shop around for the kinds of... of um, um, programs they need to be in, the kinds of restitution that might need to be provided, the kinds of, of ways of healing that brokenness. And if one um, solution doesn't work, you know, you come back and, and, and find another way of plugging in to, to the problem. It, rather than, you know, just on, you know, shipping people off to a warehouse and, and checking back with them five or ten years from now. Do you know how that's working? In, in Massachusetts? Yes. Well, I think it worked well in the beginning, and then people began to be fearful. Harmon, you may know better than I do. Um, but the, um, um, the initial experiment was, was very good, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the uh, facilities were emptied, 
and juveniles were sent to a to a whole range of programs and when they failed in one they they put found another one uh to try but what happens is that you get one or two failures you get one or two um um juveniles reoffending and then people start to get afraid and they start to 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 reinstitutionalize and so it's it's hard i think the willie horton case um when we were uh, uh, in the presidential election a while back and Dukakis was running, um, was an example of taking a, 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 a failure and making a big media splash out of it in order to discredit, you know, the 99% of the people who were succeeding in this new program. And that's, that's, those are the odds that we seem to keep coming up against. And if somebody like Willie Horton had just... Just also to the, the question about the place of confinement, I, I agree that there would be a certain percentage of people who need to be confined for a while. What I don't believe we need to do is warehouse people and, and use prisons the way we use toxic waste dumps and pretend that somehow we're making things better the more people we can lock up and the worse we can treat them and the longer we can keep them there. Because, we, A, we can't afford it. going to say that uh, uh, in the Willie Horton case, if Willie Horton had just come out of prison, if he was if he was paroled in a normal way, or if he'd served his time and just got back out and did did time again, uh, people people wouldn't think anything of it. Well, they would just say this was you know a lenient parole board and the sentence wasn't long enough, and if they even heard about it, right, they probably wouldn't hear about it because it wouldn't be part of it wouldn't be a campaign ad for a presidential election. One of the things that it's, it's interesting, I believe that the general public would would be very interested to hear a good deal more about what you have to say. But when I came to the part where you say that uh, uh, life without parole is something that you have deep concerns about, I, I'm thinking, boy, John and Jane Q. Public are probably going to really take that one up with you. Uh, people who've uh, created, uh, who've committed rather uh, heinous crimes, uh, uh, you know, triple murders and things like that. If you don't have the death penalty, uh, uh, many people would believe that you would be disrespecting the lives that were snuffed out if you gave somebody th- something any less. Well, you know, we're people of faith, and we believe in redemption. And the problem with life without possibility of parole is that it puts in concrete for all time the fact that you can't possibly be redeemed. That Just you, like the death penalty does. Right. And so, so what happens is that we really do throw away the key on those folks. Now, you could say, I suppose, that, that they can still be redeemed and lead a good life in prison, um, but the possibilities for that are extremely extremely limited we've just seen too many cases of people who've really been significantly transformed uh in the time that they've been inside and could and do 
you know, make really good lives for themselves on the outside. So I, our primary concern about life without possibility of parole is that it is that it defies the possibility of of redemption, which, as a person of faith, I'm, I'm, is just not an option to I me. I think it's a slap in the face of, of God, is one way to put what, what I think Laura was just saying, that, that somehow we do not trust that whoever our higher power that we, that we worship, depending on what our faith is, uh, does not have the power and the freedom and the goodness to, to transform people's lives and, and to uh, allow people to change and to grow. Well, that, the other that. thing, Fred, is that we have to challenge the notion that if somebody doesn't get the death penalty, we aren't respecting what happened. I think we have to pay attention to how can we truly be respecting that surviving family. What do they need? What responses do we need to make? How can we be accompanying them through that tremendous grief and tragedy that they've experienced? Because the current system does nothing for victims. There's many ways that we can show respect. Killing people or throwing away the key on people is not the only one. Well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it because we're out of time. But I want to thank you both very much for joining us uh, this week in last. Uh, our our guests today have been Laura Mignani and Harmon Ray. They are co-authors of Beyond Prisons, A New Interfaith Paradigm for Our Failed Prison System. Laura and Harmon, thank you much for your, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And please join us again next week here on Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads.